So this uh, series is called uh, The God Who Is There, and we are working on learning more about who God is, because we want to know and have a relationship with the God who is there, not the God of our own imaginations or the God of, uh, that has been kind of uh, indoctrinated into us by our culture around us. And so um, in order to come to a better understanding of the God who is there, we're going to start out this morning with a discussion of a philosophical slash religious idea called dualism. And one of the most uh, recognizable symbols of dualism is what's known as the Tai Chi symbol or the Taijutsu symbol. And I'm sure that I mispronounced those Chinese words, but uh, most of you know it as the yin yang symbol. And uh, it's really a fascinating symbol. It really has a lot of interesting meaning to the, the details of how the symbol uh, works. Um, and it really illustrates some very important aspects of dualistic philosophy. So yin and yang literally means something like uh, dark and light, and it's the two different colors of the symbol. And this symbol has been used for more than 35 centuries to convey key ideas in ancient Chinese philosophy. And it describes how seemingly opposite and contrary forces can actually be complementary, interconnected, and interdependent in the natural world and how they can actually give rise to each other and interrelate with one another. <clears throat> Some of the key uh, dualisms that these philosophers saw in the world around them include summer and winter, uh, day and night, male and female, order and chaos, uh, sun and moon, negative and positive, active and passive fire and water, all of these dualisms that they saw in the world around them. And all of those are, are uh, in, in this philosophy, are outworkings of the general principle of yin and yang. Um, and you can see in the symbol that the, the two halves are equally balanced, right? But they're not divided by a straight line down the middle, but rather by a curving line which shows how some parts of the circle are more one side than the other, but the whole circle is perfectly balanced. And the curvy line also signifies that there are no absolute separations between the two opposites. And then the other interesting thing you see there is that there's a small circle or dot in the center of each one of the opposite color. And what that shows is that uh, there is a little bit of yang in the yin and a little bit of yin in the yang. And that doesn't mean that there's an imperfection in them. It means this is the way it should be, that nothing is uh, purely one or the other, and it is part of the proper balance of all things. And they, these ideas can be thought of as complementary, not opposing forces. And according to this philosophy, everything has both yin and yang aspects to it. And the problem comes when a thing or a person has too much of one or the other and it's thrown out of balance. And the ideal is for things to have that perfect balance between these dualistic concepts. And, uh, of course, this philosophy of dualism isn't only a Chinese thing or Eastern thing. Uh, there were many dualistic philosophers among the ancient Greeks, and, uh, but they didn't have such a cool visual symbol to illustrate it, so we're looking at the Asian version here. Um, 
And of course, it's also found in popular culture. Uh, one of the obvious places we see it in, the, in our culture today is in Star Wars, where they have the light and dark side of the Force, and they're always trying to get the Force into balance between the two sides. And that uh, comes through in lots of different ways in our culture. Now, um, a lot of time, elements of this dualistic philosophy influence our understanding of the world. We might not be able to explain it this way, but this, uh, because it's so common in the way that our culture thinks about things, it influences the way we think about our world. And, and one of the reasons for that is because there is some truth here, right? We do see a lot of dualistic things in the world around us, day and night, male and female, hot and cold. These things are complementary opposites that balance each other. Right? Um, and there's nothing wrong with recognizing areas where there are balancing and complementary elements in our world. But this morning we're going to see that this idea of, of uh, dualism, of yin and yang, fails when we... So in this sermon series, we're studying the God who is there, and we want to learn about the real God who actually exists. And we want to grow in our understanding of the real God, which sometimes includes getting rid of some of the worldly philosophies that can influence our thinking in such a way as to distort our understanding of God. So there's a number of ways that dualism can distort our view of God. And we're going to look at a couple of those today. One way is to think that God himself is a balance of opposite things. And that in the nature of God, there are these opposites. That he is loving and hateful. Or that he is light and dark. Truth and fiction. Chaos and order. Life and death. And that he somehow balances these things. But the Bible does not present God this way. The Bible teaches us that God is holy and pure. God is not a mixture of positive and negative, and there is no small amount of his opposite in him. The Bible says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. This was written by the Apostle John to a group of Greek-speaking people who were familiar with that whole Greek uh, version of dualistic philosophy, and John wanted to make it clear to them that even though already in the very early days of the church, dualism was impacting the way people were thinking about God, John wants it to be clear that God is not some kind of balance between light and dark. God is pure light. And one of the key biblical concepts that stands in contrast to this dualistic, balanced view of God is his holiness. The prophet Isaiah says this, he says, But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. And I chose this particular verse uh, because it has three key, key, log- key theological concepts in, uh, in the one verse here, that emphasize that God is completely on one side and not a balance of opposing forces. And those three are justice, holy, and righteous. 
You see, uh, God is not mostly just with a balancing amount of impurity or, or of overlooking evil. You know, it's not like God most of the time he, uh, he enacts justice, but every now and then the right thing to do is to ignore justice. And so he balances the two. No, God is always just, perfectly just. And God is not mostly holy with a balancing amount of some kind of impurity. God is holiness absolute. He is completely separate from all sin and impurity. And God is righteous in all of his acts. He does not do what is right most of the time, but occasionally he has to break the rules in order to make things work properly. And so there's a balance between keeping righteousness and breaking. No, God is always perfectly righteous. And God is completely just, holy, and righteous all of the time. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And one of the reasons that we have a hard time thinking about God this way is because we ourselves are almost never like this. Um, our actions are always imperfect. Our, we have mixed motives when we do things. Our justice has flaws. Our love is impure. God is not like that, ever. He is flawless and perfect in all that he does. The Bible says he is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Because God is light and in him there is not darkness at all. So that's one way that this dualistic philosophy is a poor way of looking at God and looking at seeing the nature of God, that there are opposites being balanced in God somehow. No, God is perfect and pure. He has no imperfections that need to be offset. Now, a second way that we sometimes let dualism improperly influence our understanding of God and the world around us is through the idea that God has some kind of a rival. That there is a kingdom of God and then a rival kingdom of darkness or a kingdom of Satan or something like that. Now, there is a certain element of truth to that, right? The Bible does talk about that a little bit. Uh, the Bible teaches that Satan is real and that he is opposed to God. And uh, in the book of Colossians, it does speak of the dominion of darkness and the kingdom of light. So there is something to this, but the error comes when we start to think that the two sides are in some kind of a, uh, a, a, a real contest and balanced and like they're two equal opposing forces that are working against each other. Um, when we start to think that this uh, dominion of darkness is more or less on the same level with the kingdom of God, as if there were someone who was an actual rival to God's throne. See, in popular culture, we often see things portrayed that way, that there's the forces of good and the forces of evil, and the two are struggling together, and they are uh, very much uh, on, on the same, same plane together. And... Uh, 
and, 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 and sometimes it's even uh, told in popular culture with biblical imagery, talking about God and angels and demons and Satan and all these things, and they portray all of this uh, for us in stories. Um, but here's the thing, that while there is a kernel of truth to this idea of God and his armies battling against Satan and his armies, um, and there is even a battle described in the Bible, which we're going to look at in a minute, um, here is the thing. As an overall understanding of who God is and how the universe is and what the metaphysical reality is like, this is a flawed understanding of the world. God is the reigning king over everything, and he has no rival. This uh, idea of God as king is a common theme in the Bible. I'm going to look at a couple of Psalms, and we'll talk about a couple other places where it's brought up, but let's uh, just read a couple of these Psalms. Psalm 93, first of all which says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. God is the great and awesome king. And then a few pages further on in Psalm 97 it says, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world, the earth sees and trembles. And then the prophet Isaiah writes, as God's spokesman, he says, this is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. You see, God is God and he has no equal and no rival. No one and nothing can really oppose him. And yet, we see a world that is full of evil and chaos and suffering and sin. So why is the world the way it is if God, our perfect God, is ruling over the world? And this gets back to what we said earlier. There are forces that are opposed to God... They are not his equals or even his rivals, really, but they are in conflict with him. And that includes two different groups of, of beings. First, about a third of all the angels that God created have chosen to go their own way and to rebel against God. Uh, we don't really have a lot of information about these, uh, these beings. We, the Bible calls them demons. We do know that they oppose God's plans and especially we're told about how they oppose God's plans for mankind. And Satan is simply the leader of these rebels. He is essentially the equal of all the rest of the demons. He is not some higher being and the demons are his servants. He is basically the same 
as they are, and they're all simply created beings that God made. So Satan is not uh, a, a, a rival to God. The second group that is in opposition to God is sinful people. All of us who rebel against God and are therefore a part of what the Bible calls the dominion of darkness. And it's only when God comes to our rescue that we can be rescued out of that dominion of darkness and moved into the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus came to live among us, he came to a world that was full of people who were trapped in the dominion of darkness. But when he began his public ministry, uh, the very first time he started preaching, this was his message from the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God arrived to destroy the kingdom of darkness and to fulfill the full righteous rule of God. But he chose not to do it in the way that we expected him to do it. The kingdom did not come through a sudden overthrow of sin and the destruction of all sinful people and rebels against him. Instead, Jesus taught people about God, and he showed us how to live according to God's kingdom. And he taught us a lot about the kingdom of God and about how it would be. And then he did the thing that defeated sin and rebellion. So you remember how I said that God is completely righteous and just and holy. And I mentioned that that means that he cannot overlook injustice and unrighteousness and just pretend that it didn't happen. Right? He can't look at your sins and say, ah, don't worry about it. We're just going to pretend that, was, that, that that never happened. That would be unjust. God is 100% just. All evil must be punished. All sin must be paid for. But God is also loving. He's not a balance of love and justice as if he's 50-50, right? No, he, those are two different uh, aspects of God's character. He is 100% just. He's also 100% loving and 100% lots of other things too. But he is loving, and so Jesus paid the price for our sins himself so that justice could be served and we could be forgiven. So that when we repent of our sins, he can be faithful and just and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But God rules. He allows demons and sinful people to live in opposition to him. But his kingdom is working in the world and in the hearts and lives of those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. But God's victory is, in a sense, not yet complete. Right? As we saw in a sermon from 2 Peter, when we did a series through 2 Peter a few weeks ago, we, we talked about this uh, verse a little bit, and it says this. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. That is, the promise to, to finalize the kingdom of God. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone 
to come to repentance. The final fulfillment of God's reign is waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for people to come to repentance and move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But, but make no mistake, the day is coming when the rule will be final. And it's in the book of Revelation that we have the most complete description of how God and his rule uh, will finally be completely restored. And uh, the Apostle John in this book of Revelation, he, he sees a series of visions and he hears messages from God and he records those for us here in, in the book of Revelation. And um, one of the climactic visions he sees is this. He says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, I said Jesus didn't come to set up the kingdom. He came and preached, hey, the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And yet it came very subtly. But eventually he's going to come in the, as the, the conquering leader who will destroy all rebellion against him and will establish his kingdom in its final form. And this is the description, uh, a symbolic description of how that's going to happen. Um, this is where the Bible does use that imagery of an army opposed to Jesus and fighting against him. Uh, but the battle is simply described as Jesus defeats all his enemies with a sword coming out of his mouth, which is a strange way to hold a sword. Uh, but uh, the symbolism clearly is that it is with his word that he is able to defeat all his enemies. So it's not going to be some grand battle. It will simply be Jesus speaking words of power that will defeat all his enemies. And the book of Revelation also describes the result of Jesus' final victory over sin and over all those who oppose him. And it says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his, be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. See, God is the God who reigns, and his kingdom and his will are only partially present in the world today as he patiently waits for people to repent of their sins and, and uh, turn to him for salvation. But his victory is assured. No rival will hinder his triumph. 
So I want to end with three applications that we should take away from what we have seen in God's word today. The first one is that we should respond by bowing our knees to our Lord and King. There is no uh, sense in resisting the will of God. Uh, When God gives us instructions in the Bible, the thought of rebelling against him is insanity. There, There is no successful rebellion against God. Uh, Luckily, he is, as we said, a loving God, and his commands are actually very good for us. He wants what is best for us, so following his commands will also lead to a joyful life and the best life, but but, any resistance to his kingship is insane. Bow your knee to our Lord and King. Secondly, we should trust his sovereign will. Trust God. God is powerful. God is wise. Does them. Our role is to trust Him. Um, even when things don't make sense to us and we can't see why God did something the way He did it, or why God gives us a particular uh, command, uh, trust Him. Don't trust yourself. You don't know the best thing to do. God knows the best thing to do. And His sovereign will for your life is. Uh, is to be obeyed and to be trusted. And the third thing, we should be assured of a great future. Uh, Because we live in a world where God is patiently waiting and allowing sin and rebellion to uh, be a part of the world, uh, we do suffer various pains and trials and all kinds of things in our world right now. And uh, we get to experience joy as well, but, uh, but there, is, uh, there are hard things in the world. But when those hard things happen, we can be assured that they will not be the final word. We have a great and glorious future uh, if we choose to follow God. And his reign will be established firmly and all that... Uh, pain and suffering will be gone. So be assured that we do have a great future. We do have hope for the future. In the end, God will reign and we will be with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are glad that you reign. We are glad that you are our ruler. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to to be worthy of uh, serving you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, learn to submit to your rule. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.